What's up, comrades? Welcome to the Left Side of Liberty podcast. And I'm sorry that I haven't been doing this uh, as regularly as I would hope. I've just been kind of preoccupied at the moment, but I will try to get back into weekly uploads. But uh, anyway, man, a lot of good stuff has happened while I uh, have been away. Like Donald Trump dug up dirt on the Bidens from Ukraine and the media is melting down over it. And they're melting down because Joe Biden is a central figure in the establishment. And he doesn't want his corrupt deeds exposed, his corrupt dealings and, you know, all the things that he's done. He doesn't want that exposed. So he and his allies in the media are trying to cover his tracks for him. And I'm just not buying it. Now, okay, overall, I honestly could not care less about uh, the story in general because everybody has dirt you know even i hate to tell this to trump supporters but even donald trump has a lot of dirt i'm not going to get into it in this specific episode but trust me he's got his own share of dirt and shady dealings with other countries including saudi arabia and israel and uh but again i won't get into specifics but he's got a lot of uh skeletons in his closet too if you will so he's kind of a hypocrite because he's like he's basically using this as a validation of see i'm not corrupt it's joe biden it joe, joe biden's the corrupt one see i got the dirt on on joe biden focus on his corruption and not uh my own corruption let's just deflect from that and focus on his corruption which we should i agree we we should focus on both of them both of their both trump and biden we need to focus on the corruption of both of these figures because whether we like them or not, they're very important figures in American life. And ideally, they wouldn't be uh, corrupt, but they are. So we've got to expose them for the frauds that they are. And we need to do our best to discredit them and get them as far away from power as possible. So that's the... Thing, that's the main thing that's been going on uh, the past couple weeks. And now the media is pretending that they love whistleblowers and that they've been you know, on the side of whistleblowers. But when you talk about Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, and uh, there was a, another whistleblower that was notable, whose name is escaping me at this point, but uh, those guys basically allowed us to see that the uh, at least Snowden allowed us to see that the NSA, which is ostensibly supposed to protect our national security, they're so in the in, in the name of doing that, the NSA is spying on all of us and collecting all of our metadata. And it's really, really scary. You know, this is like Orwellian type of shit. You know, this that's what uh, is is going on with the NSA. And Chelsea Manning has exposed that we are killing innocent civilians with drones. Like that's 
her big contribution as far as whistleblowing goes. So it's just unbelievable that these people are now demonized by the media because the media is subservient to state and corporate power. And you have Snowden and Manning and the like that are exposing the state and corporate power. And so that's why the media hates, hates those guys. They cannot stand Chelsea Manning or Edward Snowden or anybody else like that because they like to pretend that, oh, we're just, you know, us, the, the, the wonderful media are just, you know, we're just neutral arbiters of truth. And we, we, we you know, just are to we totally hold people in power accountable. It's like none of that is true. You guys can convince yourselves of that till the cows come home. But it ain't true, my friends. It is not true that the media holds people in power accountable. Not true at all. And then, you know, the, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that has happened. John Bolton is out as national security advisor. And again, the media is outraged over that. Um, and it's interesting because real quick, before I get into the double video breakdown, I want to say that um, it's interesting because Tucker Carlson went out on his show after Bolton was ousted as Trump's uh, national security advisor. And he, Tucker, said, oh, John Bolton, see, he wasn't a conservative. He was actually, quote unquote, a man of the left because he wanted big government around the world, and so therefore, he's a leftist. Oh, th brilliant analysis, Tucker. Yes, brilliant analysis. Yes, John Bolton is like a progressive hero. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, unbelievable. Like, that's just such bullshit. I mean, why do conservatives... You know, and it's usually conservatives that do this. That's why I'm being a little generalized. Why do conservatives constantly feel the need, like like the pundit class specifically, why do they need or constantly feel the need to deflect responsibility? You see what I mean? I mean, so in other words, um, Hitler, for that, that's a perfect example. Uh, Adolf Hitler was one of the prime examples of far-right fascist extremism. And then you have idiots like Dinesh D'Souza, who we're going to talk about later. Uh, you have idiots like Dinesh D'Souza saying, oh, well, actually, uh, Hitler was on the left. Yeah, fa fascism is on the left. It's like, yeah, okay, that explains why... Uh, anarchists and communists were hated by fascists. You know, that, that totally, totally Dinesh. I, I'm sure that that's true. Um, no. Anyway, let's get into the uh, double video breakdown. And let's... Uh, oh, by the way, it, it's funny how they c constantly lecture the left about 
you know, you guys, your problem is you need to take more personal responsibility. And my reaction to that, again, is that's complete and utter projection. You guys are the ones that need to take personal responsibility. You guys need to call out the people that are on your side that do bad things. Because to the pundit class, the the right-wing pundit class, the right-wing is good and just and right by definition. You know, it's not just one pundit. You know, all of them make this argument. Steven Crowder, Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager, Dinesh D'Souza, Glenn Beck. You know, these guys, Tucker Carlson... You know, these guys say, oh, the 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 right, the, or they imply that the right is just and good and pure by definition. And anything that makes us look bad, oh, it's not that they were on the right, it's that they were actually on the left. Michael Knowles did a PragerU video saying how the alt-right is actually, they're actually leftists, or they share a lot of common things with uh, common ideology with the left. It's like, no, 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 no. Nice try, Michael, but no. Um, so that's something that is absolutely infuriating to me, but also at the same time hilarious. So, oh, and uh, another Tucker example, and then we'll, I promise, we'll get to the double video breakdown after this. Tucker Carlson was talking about the passing of David Koch. And in typical Tucker fashion, he was like, oh, the, these guys weren't conservatives. They were, I think he's called them libertarian ideologues, which is a, a fair point if you go by the American definition of libertarianism. But he was implying that they were not conservative, at least on economic policy and he was like oh you know the the most conservatives want to preserve medicare and social security and the cokes uh wanted to cut it now i think in the grand scheme of things that's actually true however by definition those are not conservative economic policies they're just not so you're not really uh, a fiscal conservative if you believe in, you know, a, 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 you're not as conservative as you may think you are if you support Medicare and Social Security. Now, I think you should support those things, but I'm just saying that uh, Republican doctrine typically would not allow for support of that. So the Koch brothers are actually pretty much in alignment with the policy of, uh, with conservative economic or like neoliberal economic policy, as is most of the Republican Party. Now, you could argue that some of that is because of the Koch brothers, but I think it's more of the reverse, where the Koch brothers keep funding the Republicans because they believe these things, rather than it's exclusively... Um, the Republican politicians don't have this ideology at all, and they're just doing the bidding of uh, the Koch brothers just for, you know, 
just for the hell of it. I think there's some examples of that, but I would say that it was that it's probably the reverse in many cases where they already have bits and pieces of that ideology within them to an extent, but then uh, it's perpetuated and exacerbated by uh, donations from the Koch brothers. So it's a, a mixture of, of, of the two. But anyway, let's get to the double video breakdown. So the first video that I want to play for you guys is of, it was a, a few weeks ago, I think. And it was in, it was an event uh, after the Democratic debate in Houston, or before, it was, whatever, it was the same day as the Democratic debate in Houston. And I have a friend, Dane Posner, uh, who is a member of the Libertarian Socialist Caucus of the Libertarian Party, which I'm a, a member of, and he's going to talk to, he, he was at this event supporting Tulsi Gabbard, and he's going to talk to uh, a lovely, intelligent lass by the name of Caitlin Bennett. And Caitlin Bennett is uh, one of the stars of the Liberty Hangout YouTube channel, and I think they also have, like, Twitter and, Inst and Instagram. They're, like, everywhere. Uh, and it's interesting because she's a profoundly unserious person because she works for Alex Jones. She's an InfoWars shill. So she sells his supplements and his, you know, bullshit snake oil. And she expects to be taken seriously. And, like, nobody takes her seriously. But my buddy Dane Posner said... Uh, you know, he, he his attitude, I guess, was just, "Hey, man, I'm gonna talk to her anyway, and and really uh, talk about my ideology and make people aware of my ideology and the contradictions within conservative ideology. I'm gonna use this platform to talk to a wider audience uh, about the issues that are important to me and." again, to lay out the contradictions within conservative ideology and conservative orthodoxy. So the title of this video is incredibly misleading because it says, Dems embrace communism. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. Now, I don't know if, I don't know the percentage of the people uh, at this event, I don't know how many of them are Democrats or are independents who lean Democratic or are like Dane, who he's not a Democrat, you know? So that's the first thing wrong with this video is Dane Posner is not a Democrat, you know? So anyway, so... What Caitlin Bennett does is she goes around, she's like uh, uh, the female version of Jesse Waters. You know, just this profoundly unserious person that thinks she's serious and thinks that everybody t is going to take her seriously. And she basically just harasses people on the street and instigates them and antagonizes them, that's a better word, and just says really smug and condescending things and... 
contradicts herself all the time because I've I've heard I, I I've seen a few videos from this channel and in some of the videos she says hey I, I'm a libertarian you know I'm I, I am a libertarian over here and then in a couple of other videos that I've seen she's like oh uh, I'm a conservative I'm a Republican you know so maybe she didn't say conservative but she definitely said Republican in at least one or two videos that I've seen on this channel so it's like pick one. You know, you they're they're pretty close. You know, the American style libertarianism and Republican orthodoxy. Granted, they're not all that different, but there is some difference. So, I don't know. Um, but anyway, so Caitlin Bennett is going to talk to people uh, to these people about basically that the democrats are embracing communism which by the way is not true they're a profoundly capitalist party and have no interest in communism whatsoever so that's the premise so she asks people hey you know Dem the, the democrats are embracing communism how do you feel about that like do you know what communism is do you know uh uh the history of it do you you know can you define it for me now to be fair a lot of these people did not do a good job uh, with answering her questions. You've got to come prepared. You've got to... Um, now, again, it's it's hard when this weird girl is just coming up to you and just spouting right-wing talking points in your face. So it is kind of hard to, to make solid arguments when in a situation like that, but you still got to be prepared. So... She's going to talk about how um, fascism was not as bad as communism because communism killed more people. Now, in a very literal sense of the term communism, she would have a point, but that disregards the actual definition of communism and that the, the people, like, people like Stalin, Mao, Lenin... Trotsky, all of these guys, they were not actually communists in the true sense of the term. And Caitlin Bennett would fire back at me and say, oh, you're just deflecting. It's like, no, I'm being factually accurate. In fact, uh, Vladimir Lenin despised the left openly. I've mentioned this before. He wrote an entire book called left-wing communism a mental disorder that's what he or an infantile disorder i'm sorry uh yeah left-wing communism an infantile disorder that's what he thought of the left so you can't paint lenin and uh his protege stalin who copied a lot of his policies and was arguably worse than lenin you can't call these people leftists because they had disdain for the left you know, they, they used, like, quasi-leftist rhetoric, but that doesn't mean they implemented leftist policies. No, they didn't. You know, they, they implemented very, very right-wing, rigid structures of society with, again, pseudo-left uh, economic policies that they convinced people were actually socialistic and communistic, but really were just authoritarian state capitalist Ponzi schemes, you know, and, and, and 
schemes to assassinate political opponents. So that's what that was about. So let's hear Caitlin Bennett out and let's hear my buddy Dane Posner take her to task uh, at this rally or this uh, uh, debate uh, outside the debate in Houston. Man, I can't talk today. Anyway, Caitlin and Dane, take it away. I think I'm going to play the last few seconds here of the previous guy that she was talking to, but then Dane's going to come in in a second. So here we go. Ordered by their government over on communist dictatorships. My God, Stalin killed four times as many people as... Don't you think that's pretty terrible? Yes, it's terrible. Yeah, that's that's pretty terrible. And uh, communism is better than fascism. But we don't think that those are communist governments any longer. It doesn't matter what you think. Okay, so here we go. Democrat logic. We can ignore all the tragedies that happened due to communism in the past. We can change the definition so that maybe when they rewrite the history books, it won't come up that 100 million people were killed under communism. That won't come up anymore. So... Right here, it's in the making. We're we're advocating for changing the definition of what communist is. We're going to change what's happened in the history books. We're going to make sure we rewrite the history books so that it doesn't come up so we can implement a new communism, which is actually, hate to break it to you, the same communism as before, but they're trying to forget. Shh, don't let him know. It'll ruin his day. Okay, so that's the end of the previous person that she interviewed. Now, he, this guy was trying to make the case that communism is a more democratic system. And he uh, he didn't do a very good job. As I said before, most of these people did not do a very good job. Um, so he should make the case that there are different interpretations uh, of what communism means. Now, I go by the original definition, which is essentially... A a stateless, classless society wherein the workers have control over the means of production and it's a non-hierarchical, non-hierarchical, non-hierarchical society that is ideally very free, very cooperative and all around just better, (laughs) quite frankly. So that's the definition that I use. So the means of production are owned by the community and by the workers. You know, that, that, that's what the original definition of communism meant. But then with people who share the same ideology as Caitlin Bennett, the definition got twisted over the years. And now it's become central command of the economy um the state owns everything totally authoritarian you know like that, that's the typical uh redistribution of wealth blah 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 that that's the right wing straw man of what communism is and really again as i've said before no that state capitalism because they didn't get rid of the capital in their countries entirely. They just hoarded it for themselves. That's not anything to do with communism. Nothing. So, uh, anyway, uh, she's going to 
now talk about oh by the way and and she also neglects to mention that even if we grant the oh communism is is um communism is central command of the economy and a brutal authoritarian state like if if we grant that definition uh even if we do that sorry even if we grant that definition she neglects to mention that there are different forms of communism there's anarcho-communism which i adhere to there's council communism there's libertarian marxism there's there's a ton of different varieties of marxism and communism and she is so brainwashed by right-wing ideology by uh, right-wing propaganda and the right-wing ideology that she has no idea what she's talking about as she makes it seem like it's the democrats and the lefties that don't know what they're talking about so um oh and by the way the uh, rewriting the history books thing Actually, no, that's not what the left does. That's what you guys do. That's what Dinesh D'Souza does with his bullshit documentaries. That's what your boss, Alex Jones, does with his documentaries. And, you know, so so all they do is just rewrite history through books, through uh, documentaries, through whatever media you choose to use as an example. That's what the right wing does, not the left. The left is overwhelmingly more factually accurate than the right it's just that's that's a fact you know the the left cares more about facts and truth than the right does i'm sorry if that offends the conservative listeners to my podcast all like three of you but that's just the truth you know if you look at politifact if you look at you know all these fact-checking organizations the lefties and the democrats the the pseudo left actually right wing uh guys uh the, the pseudo left right wing party known as the democratic party those guys tell the truth more than the republicans so and and uh the libertarians and just the the uh far right extremists in this country and in other countries you know just the left is more factual so anyway Let's get into Dane Posner talking to Caitlin Bennett and just schooling her. As she keeps talking over him, he still does a very good job uh, in a lot of respects. Uh, just, again, holding her to task on her BS propaganda. So, Dane, take it away. You consider yourself pro-life? Yep. Um, and so uh, you feel that uh, anybody should be able to cross whatever borders they want? Do you not believe in borders? You believe that people should uh, be able to freely migrate? But so so we can have this discussion, can you kind of put definitions in place to show me the correlation between being pro-life against against killing unborn babies and people hopping a border to get tax dollars? Can you tell me what's going on there? 
Um, I believe in the uh, the right to free movement. So okay. it's not necessarily about the, anybody that crosses our borders ends up paying into our tax system. Okay. Obviously, sales tax exists, and anybody that that works, even if they get a fake social security number, they're still paying into the system. They pay about 19 billion, but they cause about 130 billion. The, and think about what why people are why. Okay, so that right there, uh, Dane did a very good job in most of that exchange right there. Uh, he's basically calling Caitlin Bennett out on, okay, you say you're pro-life, but you have no, you have nothing to say when it comes to the slaughtering of immigrants coming over the border. You have nothing to say about the slaughtering of innocent people uh, when it comes to our border. So don't call yourself pro-life if you're in favor of a heavily militarized border that results in the incarceration and sometimes murder of innocent people. So that that's his point. And Dane very correctly said, even if illegal immigrants come over here and, and get a fake social security number, which, because by the way, they can't get welfare because... They're illegal. And yes, some of them do slip through the cracks and get a fake social security number. But as Dane said, even with that, they're still paying into our tax system. They pay sales tax. They, <clears throat> sorry about that. There are things like sales taxes that people pay that, and like property taxes, you know, for at the local level, you know, there, there are all these these taxes that generate revenue into state, local, and federal, uh, the state economy, the federal economy, and the local economy that offset the cost, essentially, of the so-called illegal or undocumented immigrants. So I don't know where she's getting the uh, figure of, I, I forget the exact figure she said it would be nice if she would have cited the statistics that uh that said that let me see if i can find it again works even if they get a fake social security number they're still paying into the system they pay about 19 billion but they cause about 130 billion okay okay now i did not fact check that statement but the burden of proof is not on me I'm just a, a, a commentator and I'm an outside observer. The burden of proof was on her. She's the one that made the claim and she offered no citation of any statistics, any studies, nothing. She just says it. So, so where did you get that information from, Caitlin? Where'd you get that from? Did, are you just pulling that number out of your ass? Like what, where did you get, oh, uh, illegal immigrants cause, uh, cost us um, $130 billion and they only pay $19 billion into the system. Where did you get that from? Where did you get that? I mean, even the Cato Institute, which is a right-wing slash libertarian in the American tradition, uh, libertarian think tank, even they were like, no, illegal immigrants are actually a net benefit to the economy, as Dane was saying. So, now, uh, he kind of seemed a little reluctant there uh, and a little sort of uneasy 
Again, I understand that, but you have to be prepared uh, to, to face these types of characters like Caitlin Bennett. So he kind of made himself look a little... Um, he didn't make himself look as good as he could have made himself look uh, when he kind of was like a little eh, kind of shaky, you know, and like, but like shaky in his voice. But again, I understand when this this smug girl is in your face with a microphone and, you know, just shouting right wing talking points at you. So uh, anyway, let's carry on and I, I guess my point is Dane I wish I wish Dane would have refuted that point I wish he would have pushed back and said where did you get those statistics from where did you get those numbers from you know what what study uh, who funded the study um, you know what were what was the methodology in gathering that data you know these are the questions that you have to ask and she didn't ask him where he got you know, his, his, she didn't ask him those questions, but he easily could have asked her those questions. So that's the one criticism I have in this entire exchange is I wish he would have asked her where she got those statistics from. So anyway, let's uh, continue the conversation, shall we? And think about what, why people are, why they're coming here. I just want to know your correlation between not uh, terminating pregnancies and terminating lives inside the womb and people crossing our border. Well, so, I mean, but you're saying you, you support, do you believe that taxation is theft? Uh, because if you believe that taxation is theft, then you wouldn't support the military or militarized forces. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Slaughtering okay, anybody. when did I say I support that? Um, I, I'm familiar with your work. When did I say it? I, I'm, I'm familiar with your work. When did I say I, I, it? I follow fashion. When did I, I say it? When did I say it? You said it. Give me the proof. <laughs> I'm not going to pull up your Twitter, but... uh. Well, you're not going to pull it up because you can so, never find saying, where I've so supported support, that. Give me the proof. Yes no? Give me the proof. Do you support? Give me the proof. Is. Don't accuse people of saying certain things or supporting certain things and then not showing the well, proof. I'm Be asking, a man. Be a man and I'm show asking, me the proof. Do you support open oh, boy. So, a lot to unpack in that short little segment. So, um, Dane was basically asking Caitlin Bennett, Hey, once again, you say uh, you're... Or, no, this is before that. So, he says, You're not talking about the reason why a lot of these immigrants are coming across the border. You're not talking about that. You're just talking about the fact that they're doing it. You're not talking about the reason why they're doing it. And the reason why they're doing it, which Dane was alluding to, is because of the drug war. That's why they're coming over here, because we started the drug war under Richard Nixon, which was, uh, according to his own aide uh, that was uh, in the White House at the time, it was basically a, a, a political scheme to lock up black people and hippies you know so so poor white people and black people because poor white people and black people are more likely to vote democrat so the nixon administration came up with this policy of hey why don't we make all these drugs illegal and and uh and make the sentences more severe so we can lock up these people and 
that will give us, the Republicans, the advantage we need to win more presidential elections. So that was the whole point of the drug war, and it was exacerbated by yet another Republican, Ronald Reagan, in the 1980s. Yeah, small government, my ass. You know? Yeah, the Republicans totally are for small government. You know, except when you do, when you put into your body substances that they don't like, and when you vote the, uh, a way that's different from the way they want you to vote. So that is incredibly, uh, I don't know, just, that's the truth is what I want to say. That is the truth of the matter. And this, this idea led to the drug cartels in Mexico and in Central America getting really, really powerful, and they have ravaged countless countries in Central America. Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, these, uh, Guatemala, these countries are, Nicaragua, I don't know if I said that already, but anyway, the point is, Central America is in shambles right now because of the drug war, where you have effectively narco-states that are run by these vicious, murdering thugs uh, that we could have... Uh, we, we can take away their power with a snap of our fingers by just ending the drug war. Because if we end the drug war, then... Uh, and, and then uh, uh, legalize, tax, and regulate drugs then they would be in our market and they would be regulated and controlled in our market and that would take away the power from these drug cartels and render them basically obsolete. And what evidence do I have for that? Prohibition. Prohibition was when we banned alcohol in the, uh, in the early 1900s up until 1937 when it was repealed. Um, and at that time... The mafia had a monopoly on the alcohol market, and the mafia got really, really powerful. And sure enough, when alcohol was legalized again, uh, the mafia was severely weakened by uh, the repeal of prohibition. And another reason why they re-emerged around the 70s, if you will, uh, is, again, because of the drug war, because that's around the time when the drug war uh, was first conceived of and uh, implemented. So you had the mafia and you had drug cartels smuggling in, you know, heroin, cocaine, marijuana, so on and so forth. And, and as a result, they now have incredible power, especially the drug cartels. So, unbelievable. So, so, so basically, we screw these countries up, and then they come to us for help uh, in sort of in rebuilding their lives and, and trying to create a better life for themselves and their families. We get indignant and outraged 
uh, at the audacity of them coming here and seeking asylum. These are not, th that's the other point. A lot of these people are not illegal immigrants that are coming over the border. They're asylum seekers. And yes, some of them have skipped out on the court dates or the court hearings uh, for to be legally granted uh, as an asylee or not. Like that, so that's kind of a stupid thing to do. But overall, you know, these people are just trying to seek a better life and are eventually going uh, going through the processor would go through it if they weren't impeded by being locked in cages. So they they would if we would just give them a chance and if the Trump administration would stop dehumanizing these people. And it was it's not just the Trump administration. The Obama administration did the same thing and the Clinton administration uh, did the same thing. So it's not just Trump, to be fair, but Trump is the president and he can do something about it. And he said that he is against separating families at the border. Okay, then do something about it. And he hasn't done anything about it. So, anyway, let's continue the conversation, shall we? Be a man. Do you support open borders? You are not a man. Wow, a lot of soy in here. So, something that he can take to help regulate his soy so, consumption so and all the soy that's in his body is Super Vitality from InfoWarsStore.com. See, told you she was an InfoWars shill. So, once again, uh, Dane asks her for the millionth time, are you for open borders? And she doesn't answer the question. She never answers that question. And so... I wonder what her actual position is. Hmm. Let me figure that one out. Um, because, you know, if you're saying, you know, you're a libertarian or, you know, you're a conservative and you're against big government, then you would be against militarizing the border on our dime. Our tax dollars are going toward that. You would not support a, uh, a national defense system if you're actually against taxation and you believe it's theft. You wouldn't support that. And if you were actually pro-life, again, you wouldn't support the slaughtering of innocent people. So uh, he's he's calling out her hypocrisy yet again, and she doesn't have an answer. So she just keeps talking over him. So let's get through the last uh, few seconds of this conversation. Could really use that, that some brain force a lot too. There's a lot. Of, ooh, he's getting mad. He's shouting very manly. Brown families overseas. You have a feminine voice. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. We're, yeah, Communists we're, are not we're, we're welcome in America, over, so. are you? We are. We are. Oh, Growing right. by the day. You guys all starve to death before you Make can ever accomplish anything. Make libertarian socialists again. This is the face of socialism. This is who's taking over the country. Get it. Get a good look at it. This is the face. That wants to privatize everything and hoard natural resources just like Stalin and call themselves. This is the face of socialism. They're taking over the world. I'm so scared. Okay. So that's pretty much it um, for that particular video. So Dane made a great point. Uh, at the very end there, he's saying, you're the one that supports an ideology that sounds a lot like what Stalin did, which is hoard resources, hoard capital, and not have any uh, assurances in place that 
everybody will be able to access these resources and have you know a reasonable a reasonable amount of these resources so that sounds a lot like stalin you know um especially since uh if you have like like the the argument that i hear from quote unquote and caps all the time is oh well you know why do we need a uh, public police force we could just have private police forces it's like okay so you want to create many states as you say that you're an anarchist you're making the case for statism that's what you're doing <laughs> you're making the case for <clears throat> for a bunch of little corporate states you know the, these little oligarchic states um because they would have a monopoly on the legitimate use of force in the given geographical area. That's the definition of a state. So, uh, these these people are unbelievable. And yes, Dane is right. We are a growing movement, and we will win. And no, Caitlin Bennett, we will not starve because we will guarantee that ourselves and everybody else will have plentiful resources and and limitless access to those essential uh, resources so no we won't starve we will be living in a more democratic and free and cooperative society uh, uh, unlike you who you're the one that wants basically, a fascist or a collection of fascist states as you claim to be anti-statist or at least you know you're implying that you're anti-statist by saying that you're a libertarian so anyway because because again uh fascism as defined by benito mussolini is when the corporations and the state merge into one that sounds a lot more than that sounds a lot more like fascism than actual communism. It's it's just another form of state capitalism. You know, so there's not much of a difference between like the the fascistic state capitalism and the supposedly quote unquote communist state cap uh, state capitalism, which again is really just another form of state capitalism. It's not actual communism. Sorry. They may have called themselves the the USSR. The ruling party may have called themselves the Communist Party, but again, the ruling party of North Korea is the Democratic People's uh or sorry, the uh, Workers Party of Korea and the the state is officially called the Democratic uh the the uh, Democratic um, People's Republic of Korea. There we go. Uh, it's none of those things are accurate at all. It's all Orwellian bullshit. That's what uh, those countries engage in. And that needs to be, that message needs to be hammered home on a grander scale and 
a lot more effectively and a lot more often. So anyway, let's move on to the second video. I mentioned that <clears throat> we were going to hear more about uh, Dinesh D'Souza because I've never uh, covered him on uh, th this podcast before. Um, hold on a second. Uh, I've never covered him on this podcast before. And uh, he's going to talk about Um, <clears throat> sorry about that. He's going to talk about Marxism. He, he's going to, he's going to debate Marxism with a Marxist, uh, actually, uh, he, no, uh, that's, that this is, I, I watched two different videos. I'm going to play the first one, which is where Dinesh D'Souza goes after the labor theory of value and basically said, oh, it's stupid and blah, blah, blah. So... Uh, here he's talking about uh, the concepts of surplus value and profit and how basically the boss does deserve to exploit the workers and the workers basically should be grateful for what they have and they should just sit by and take it. You know, that's conservatism 101 right there. So anyway, uh, Dinesh, <clears throat> take it away. Here in Palo Alto, there's a Ritz-Carlton, there's a Weston. Now, imagine a guy who is a valet parking cars at the Ritz-Carlton here in Palo Alto. And this guy is paid, let's say, $15 an hour. And let's say that he works 10 hours a day, so he makes 150 bucks. And this guy is now thinking to myself, in those 10 hours, how many cars did I park? Well, I parked, let's say, 100 cars. And how much does the Ritz-Carlton charge for someone to park their car? $30. So how much should the Ritz-Carlton make as a result of me parking those 100 cars? $3,000. And how much was I paid out of that $3,000? $150. 3,000 minus $150 gives $2,850. Who gets that? So from the valet's point of view, this is a very unjust system because I'm doing the work and some other guy is taking the cash. And this argument about the injustice of capitalism is actually anchored in, I think, uh, a rather interesting argument that was made by Marx himself. And so there's a big difference between the revenue generated by the sales and the cost. And that difference Marx calls surplus value. We call it profit. And Marx's question, uh, quite a profound question, who gets that? Now Marx's assumption is that that belongs 100% to labor. Why? Because labor made the goods. The capitalists supplied nothing more than the money which has already been recompensed through interest. My view is that this description, convincing as it is on first glance, is a completely false representation of how businesses actually run. Consider for a moment the capitalist. 
In America today, the vast majority of capitalists supply a lot of things, but the one thing they do not supply is capital. Did Steve Jobs actually put up all the capital for Apple? No, he went to a bank. The bank supplied the capital. And this is true of Gates and all, everyone down the list. The bottom line of it, the capitalist supplies three things that Marx completely ignores that are actually of far greater value than capital and actually entitle the capitalist to a share of the profit. But Marx, in a sense, submerges these three factors completely. First, the capitalist has the idea for the business. Without the idea, there's no business. Labor doesn't think of the idea. The capitalist does. It's his or her idea. They do it. Second, the capitalist organizes the business. Here you have this valet. He goes, I parked the cars. I need all the money. The truth of it is the reason you're getting $30 to park a car is you're at the Ritz-Carlton. Somebody built the Ritz-Carlton. Somebody thought of it. Somebody paid all the capital costs. Somebody took out the insurance. You didn't think of that. If you come to my house and want to park my car, I'll pay you 50 cents. Okay, okay. So a lot to unpack there, obviously. Um, <clears throat> sorry about that. So, Dinesh D'Souza is basically dismissing the idea that he's basically dismissing the labor theory of value. And the labor theory of value, as he correctly states, is that very simply, the value of a good is determined by how much labor goes into it, which is what he was alluding to. It's, it's labor that creates the products. It's labor that generates the value. That's what the labor theory of value posits. And he's dismissing that idea and saying basically, oh, well, the, uh, the, the capitalist thought of the idea and he started the business, he took the risk. It's like, okay, but risk and an idea still doesn't justify taking he gave the example of uh, the three thousand dollars generated by the Ritz Carlton valet parking service or whatever, and he said, "Well, you know the 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 capitalist should get most of that uh, should get two thousand nine hundred and eighty five, and the." Uh, worker should just get fifteen uh, dollars for for each uh, for each hour. I think is what he was saying. But that's still immoral because the capitalist may have started the company and may have came come up with that idea, but he did not park those cars himself. He didn't park those cars himself. The worker did that. The worker parked the cars. He didn't come down from his ivory tower and uh, and even assist in uh, parking the cars. The again, the worker did that, not the uh, the owner of the Ritz Carlton. So totally misleading point. Totally disregards. Uh, basically, Dinesh D'Souza is saying that. The capitalist is justified in taking a 
much larger share of the wealth because he or she was the one who uh, basically allowed the workers to work there in the first place. He, he He's the one that came up with the idea. He's the one that took the risk. He's the one that organized everything. So that is worth more to Dinesh D'Souza. That stuff is worth more than the workers who actually are contributing to the success of the company. And yes, the, the owner, uh, if he's good, didn't, you know, he, he doesn't, certainly doesn't hurt the company uh, through his policies, but he's hurting his workers if he takes $2,985 and just gives a little crumb of $15 back to his worker when Dinesh D'Souza uh, himself said, oh, you know, he, he generated uh, he, he generated $3,000 worth of, uh, of revenue for the company, then he should get that $3,000. He, he, he should, I don't care if the, um, if the business owner took the risk and started the business, that is not worth more than the basic, than basic human dignity and survival. You know, there are people that work two or three jobs because they don't, that, because they can't make it uh, enough money to survive. And yet these uh, CEOs and whatever have all the money in, in, in the world, quite literally, because they have most of it. Um, and they're working one job. Now, granted, there's a lot that goes into that, but mostly they're just collecting money. Like that's just, that's basically what they do. Again, they're not uh, parking cars. They're not the ones on the floor manufacturing certain goods. They're not making cars. They're not making TVs. They're not making couches. They're not making clothes. You know, they're just counting the money that the workers are making, uh, uh, that, that the workers are generating from making those goods and those goods being sold. So, and that doesn't address, by the way, the, the larger argument of workplace democracy. The fact that the workplace is set up as, in an inherently tyrannical way where, yes, there, the, again, I totally acknowledge, yes, the person that started the business had the idea, but that doesn't mean that he gets to boss around everybody and basically hold their, hold his employees hostage um, through like things like employer funded uh, health insurance. You know, some people will stay at a job that they hate just because they like the retirement benefits and they like the health care. So they're forced to stay at this dead end, bullshit, tyrannically structured working environment uh, because if they leave that environment, then the benefits go away. So, and it's 
highly unlikely that they'll be able to find a corresponding or, or, or a similar type of benefit structure in another environment and another occupation. So uh, he, Dinesh D'Souza totally disregards that. And so to him, again, the, the, the idea and the initial investment is worth more than the value generated for the company by the workers and therefore the workers deserve no uh say in what to produce how to produce it you know the, the workers don't deserve any of that uh but the the boss of course he deserves to exploit his workers whenever and however he damn well pleases and again you just have the right to sit there and take it that's that's your right uh, is to just sit there and take being dictated to in this highly tyrannical system. So anyway, let's get through the last minute here. So the reason that you're getting $30 is not because of you. $30. It's not your labor that's worth $30. It's the resort that's worth $30. And you didn't create that. So the whoa, 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 whoa. If he generated $30 for the company, then again, he should get that back because he generated that. He's entitled to getting that $30 back. Um, because look, if you, here's a real simple analogy. If you were say shoveling snow and uh, you, so you're helping a neighbor shovel snow. Now your neighbor employed you and your neighbor uh, basically gave you permission to go on his property and shovel his, his driveway. So in Dinesh D'Souza's mind, uh, the, the neighbor has the right to say, okay, um, I'll decide to pay you. I I decide that your labor is worth twenty dollars uh, for let's say an hour of shoveling snow. So you get twenty dollars an hour. So that that would be like saying, okay, you did twenty dollars worth of work for me, and since I generate or sorry since i am the one that came up with that idea what i'm gonna do is i'm going to since i bought the shovel i uh gave you a place to work in this case being the driveway i i provide the shovel you know so so in that case in dinesh d'souza's mind that would justify the neighbor going, oh, by the way, uh, even though I've decided that you uh, have done $20 worth of work, since I'm the one that came up with the idea of you doing that, I'm just going to take, say, fifteen fifty dollars uh, of that $20 and keep it to myself, and you can have four fifty dollars 
and basically you just have to shut up and take it. Like that's the equivalent of what Dinesh D'Souza is saying. So anyway, again, let's let's get through the. So, so is that really a moral uh, system? <clears throat> so anyway, let's finish the video here and then we'll get into the forehead. Come on, Dinesh. He organizes it and third, he takes all the risk. Very important factor. The capitalist gets paid at the end. If the business has a bad quarter, Steve Jobs can't go or the current Tim Cook can't go to Apple and say, sorry guys, I'm not gonna pay you for six months. It's looking bad for us this half of the year. No, he has to pay them anyway. So labor is trading a fixed wage for security. But the entrepreneur is taking the risk that he might get nothing out of it and he could even lose money. So the truth of the matter is that in fairly assessing the just rewards of capitalism, you have to match what the entrepreneur actually contributes. And to say it's just capital, it seems to me, is a gross misunderstanding how business is actually conducted in the United States and all around the world. Okay, so that's it. So again, because the business owner took the risk, that again, in Dinesh D'Souza's mind, is enough to justify the exploitation and unfair compensation of workers. And his argument, I interpret his argument at the end to mean, well, the, because uh, I hear this a lot, the, the workers agreed to work for a wage, so I guess it's okay. No, it's not okay. They agreed because they have no other choice. You know, the, the people that make that argument act like, well, you have a choice. Um, uh, if you want like an anarcho-syndicalist workplace, uh, you can choose to set that up, but that doesn't work within the capitalist system. The capitalist system is designed to destroy workplace democracy. And any uh, organization uh, or you know, sort of corporate institution that institutes that policy with the notable exception of Mondragon in Spain. You know, so, so they've been able to make it work in, uh, in a sense, but in the grand scheme of things, if it's deemed unprofitable to, <clears throat> sorry, to incentivize uh, worker cooperatives, like if a worker cooperative with a, with a democratic uh, horizontal structure, if that's deemed not profitable, then you're gonna do, if you're a business owner, you're gonna do whatever you can to mitigate that and turn a profit, even if it means sacrificing workplace democracy. So then you set up this tyrannical structure, this hierarchical system that unjustly exploits workers. You know, I, I understand Dinesh D'Souza's points that he's making, but still none of them justify the fact that you have Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. And then, uh, so you have him at the top and then you have his workers that allow his business to function and run smoothly. And he just recently caved to Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders was like, hey, uh, Jeff Bezos, we're not gonna give you any subsidies or government contracts if you don't pay your workers $15 an hour. So 
that's a step. But what we really need is to democratize places like Amazon and everywhere else, because then workers can have a say in the decisions that the company makes and will guarantee a better and brighter future for themselves and their families that does not include struggling to pay the electric bill, struggling to pay the light bill, struggling to afford food, struggling to pay the rent, you know, all these struggling to pay car insurance, struggling to pay for gas, you know, so so Jeff Bezos uh, gets to keep $150 billion and the uh, most of the workers that he employs, they get to, again, struggle to afford food, struggle to afford shelter, you know, struggle to pay the rent, struggle to afford to keep their lights on. That's what they uh, that's what they get for their labor. So labor is an integral part of the way a business functions, whether Dinesh D'Souza wants to admit it or not. And everything he said there was a diversion from the actual conversation that um, Marx in particular uh, was having. And that is that these workplaces are structured in a very totalitarian way and we need, when we need to democratize them in order to increase human dignity and human freedom and survival. That's what Marx was saying and what people that took a more libertarian approach like Kropotkin, Bakunin, that's what these guys uh, were saying. So, no, I'm sorry, Dinesh. Uh, the, I, the fact that somebody comes up with an idea and... Uh, you know, and invests a certain amount of money, that still doesn't justify the exploitation of workers, meaning that if they generate, say, $5,000 worth of revenue in a single day, and you have 10 employees, ideally, what should happen in that situation is you have, sorry about that, is you would have the 10 employees get $500 each. That's the ideal uh, scenario if we're using uh, monetary, uh, the monetary system that we have now as an example. So that would be a fair thing that, that the workers would would uh, share evenly the surplus value uh, among the 10 workers that would be <clears throat> sorry $500 each because 500 times 10 is 5,000 obviously so that's the first point and then the second point is despite taking the risk and investing uh, a certain amount of uh, money and whatever, the business owner still is not justified in taking... So let's use the $5,000 example again. He's not justified, he or, or she or whoever, is not justified in taking, say, uh, 4000 of that uh, $5,000 for themselves and then distributing the remaining 
ten or sorry the remaining thousand dollars among the ten employees because that would mean that they would only get a hundred dollars each when the reality is they should be getting five hundred dollars each because that's the value that they generated so that doesn't you know again it still it still doesn't justify uh that system so anyway let's get to the uh forehead really quick <clears throat> sorry about that so the first thing i want to address is uh, an article in jacobin from a few weeks ago i think it was this is from 917, so almost a month ago now. Um, and it's by uh, uh, Bhaskar Sankara, who was the who was the founder of Jacobin. <clears throat> and this article is called "The Working Families Party Has Written Itself Out of History." So the synopsis of this article is that the uh, WFP, the worker, the uh, Working Families Party, uh, announced that they were endorsing Elizabeth Warren for president over Bernie Sanders. And basically the... Uh, <clears throat> and basically, the article makes the case that, you know, obviously, Bernie is much more uh, ideal, a candidate for the Working Families Party than Elizabeth Warren. But they're going with Elizabeth Warren because they basically think it's more realistic that she will... Uh, Uh, that, that, that she will, like, get things done, essentially. And... Uh, it's funny because... Uh, he had... Uh, Bernie Sanders had an 87... Uh, percent approval rating in the uh, Working Families Party in 2016. So it's just, it's unbelievable that the Working Families Party you're going with somebody like Elizabeth Warren who is not all bad, but She's also terrible on a lot of issues. She doesn't support Medicare for all. She doesn't support any sort of single payer system. She used, and Kyle Kolinsky reported this, uh, she used money generated from her Senate campaign to fund her, uh, her presidential campaign and most of that 
was raised by big money donors as she's going around claiming, oh, I haven't taken any money from uh, big money donors. I'm 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 fighting for you. I'm fighting for the work uh, working class. You know, it's. It's she's full of shit, really. And basically, uh, the they outline uh, the uh, main point about the differences between Warren and Sanders. Because if you listen to the media, Elizabeth Warren is basically the female version of Bernie Sanders, and that's not even close to true. Um, so uh, Bernie Sanders has predominantly a working class base and also a multiracial base. And uh, Elizabeth Warren's base is more white, sort of middle-aged and middle-class, um, you know, upper-middle-class people that are probably more sort of like centristy kind of like that's her demographic and the working families party is supporting her over sanders are you kidding me it is unbelievable and uh the working party's family so-called should be ashamed of themselves ashamed it is unbelievable they are basically just another neoliberal pseudo left party and i don't know i i don't know what to say uh about that other than what i've already said so anyway <clears throat> sorry about that let's talk about the uh the i uh you know how I always like to cover uh, strikes from around the world, whether they're in the public sector or the private sector. And in this case, there are Canadian workers in Saskatchewan that are public sector workers that are uh, striking. And this uh, article was written uh, in WSWS by Carl Bronski. Uh, this is from just yesterday, so it's pretty new. So <clears throat> he says, after a four, uh, sorry, after a four-day work-to-rule campaign, five thousand workers at six Saskatchewan Crown corporations and one Crown agency went on strike Friday against the provincial government's uh, derisory contract offer. The proposed five-year deal would result in a significant cut in workers' real wages. The strike is the largest job action to hit the province in decades. It involves workers represented by Unifor at Sask Power, SaskTel, Sask Water, Sask Energy, the Water Security Agency, and two SaskTel Sask subsidiaries. Provincial negotiators answering to the right-wing government of the Saskatchewan Party Premier Scott Moe have offered a contract that would see workers saddled with a 0% wage raise or wage rise for the first two years, 1% in the third year, 2% in the fourth year, and 
uh, percent for some in the fifth year, for you know some more in the fifth year. Uh, with the province's inflation rate currently running at 2% and rising, the government's contract offer would result in a significant reduction in crown workers' purchasing power. Management also has sought to increase contracting uh, out at the various companies. There we go. Since 2007, management at Saskatchewan's government-owned corporations have received salary increases at more than twice the rate of the workforce. So, do you see what that uh, is trying to say? That the uh, government of Saskatchewan, the provincial government of Saskatchewan, has given, uh, since 2007, has given subsidies to these government-owned corporations uh, at twice the rate of increasing the salaries for the workforce. I mean, th this is a disaster for the workers. Of course, you know, the people at the top are doing fine, but the workers are suffering. So, uh, the uh, Saskatchewan uh, provincial government in 2008 uh, passed this thing called the Public Essential Public Service Public Service Essential Services Act. There we go. And basically, it effectively banned strikes by the quote declaring a huge section of the public sector workforce essential. So basically, uh, they do what a lot of these uh, governments do with these state-owned industries is they basically say, well, you're a public utility, so therefore you can't strike because you're essential uh, for the public. So, haha, ha, you can't strike. Um, <clears throat> so, this is a disaster. I'm not going to read the rest of the article. Uh, you guys can read it for yourselves. Uh, once again, it's called Canada, 5,000 worker Sorry, Canada. 5,000 public sector workers strike in Saskatchewan. And it's on WSWS. So, uh, as usual, I have multiple articles from WSWS uh, to share <clears throat> with you guys. So let's go to the next one. This is by, oh, it doesn't uh, give an author. So this is also from w, WSWS, as I said, and it says, the GM strike is a fight against the entire working, uh, sorry, the entire ruling class. There we go. <clears throat> so they say, General Motors' decision to double down on demands to expand temporary work uh, to expand temporary work, quintuple workers' health care costs, and keep wages growing below the rate of inflation marks a major offensive not only by GM against 48,000 striking auto workers, but all, by all of corporate America against the U.S. And, and the international working class. There we go. The ruthlessness of the corporation shows that if the strike is to succeed, workers must take control out of the hands of the UAW and expand the strike. The UAW has isolated workers and weakened their position, paying them $250 in strike pay and keeping Ford and Fiat Chrysler workers on the job to help the auto industry withstand the impact of the continued strike. 
The strike is causing a significant, or sorry, the, the strike is causing significant disruptions in international supply chains. Yeah, in international supply chains. Yesterday, GM furloughed 415 of 2,100 workers at its Mexican V8 engine and transmissions plant in Ramos Arizpe. Arizpe, there we go, uh, in the northern state of Coahuila. So the 6,000 worker Silao uh, Silao Guanajuato plant remained shut down. There we go. Sorry about that. That was a mouthful. Over 10,000 non-UAW members have been laid off at parts and other related facilities, there we go, in the U.S. as a result of the strike. The outcome of the strike will determine the conditions of life for millions of workers across not just the auto industry, but for all workplaces for years to come. And... Uh, I'm going to skip around here. What GM is trying to force upon its workforce is corporate America's dream vision of the future. An army of temporary workers with no rights who can be thrown onto the street at will. Factories that can be shut uh, can be shuttered by the company as it wishes. The elimination of employer-provided health care. Uh, rising productivity through, uh, through speed-up with lower wages and higher injury rates. Now, um, I think that's pretty much uh, enough for this article. Uh, There's more, again, if you guys want to read it. uh, It's called, The GM Strike is a Fight Against the Entire Ruling Class. So, anyway. The... The thing about the employer-funded insurance, uh, they seem to to think that... It's a good idea, but as I said earlier, I don't think it's a a very good idea at all. I I guess I'd rather have it uh, at at this stage. I'd rather have it than not have it because that's how a lot of these people can, uh, can get health insurance. But the idea of employer funded health insurance is a total scheme because it's basically there's a conditionality around receiving those benefits and that's don't strike because if you strike then oh that's a nice healthcare plan there uh, it would be a shame if something happened to it like that's basically the contract uh, in order to get those benefits like don't don't you dare strike, because uh, that's a nice healthcare plan, and it would be a shame if something happened to it. So, uh, I don't necessarily agree with their uh, uh, defense of employer-funded insurance, but I understand that it's probably better than uh, not having it. But the real answer, again, is is a single-payer type system. Uh, whether it be Medicare for all or a similar type of single payer system. And as I've said before, I support the uh, Canadian or French model, which is public money, so tax dollars, going to private institutions, like funding private 
institutions. So, anyway, of course, I totally support the GM uh, auto workers. Of course, people like Fox News are not very fond of these guys. And one guy even tried to claim, and you can see this too, I think he was on Fox and Friends uh, or like some sort of, maybe he was on Fox Business actually. He tried to claim, that's right, he was talking to Stuart Varney. He was like, oh, uh, Bernie Sanders people shoved me uh, at this uh, UAW strike. Uh, I think it was in Detroit. And on film, you can see, no, the dude was not shoved. There are some people that seemed a little frustrated with the guy that was interviewing them. But nobody shoved you, dude. Nobody shoved you. So we can see it on film. You're caught red-handed. Nobody shoved you. Shut up, you know. Uh, so anyway, let's get to the last story here. And uh, once again, WSWS. This is called Washington Greenlights Turkish Attack on Kurdish Forces in Syria. And this is by Alex Lantier and Ulas Ateshi. So let's see what they have to say here. On Sunday night, a major shift in U.S. war pol- in, in a major shift in U.S. war policy, the White House gave a green light for the Turkish for a Turkish invasion of northern Syria. In doing so, it has abandoned uh, to their fate Kurdish nationalist militias that have fought since 2015 as Washington's main proxy force in the NATO war in Syria, and which the Turkish government denounces as terrorists to be blood, bloodily suppressed. After Trump called Turkish Pre- President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, uh, yeah, after Trump called Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the White House issued a statement at 11 p.m. Sunday, uh, 11 p.m. Sunday, declaring, Turkey will soon be moving forward with its long-planned operation into northern Syria. The United States Armed Forces will not support or be involved in the operation, and the United States forces, having defeated the ISIS territorial caliphate, will no longer be in the immediate area. Yesterday, as as U.S. troops withdrew from positions along the Turkish-Syrian border, Erdogan said the Turkish attack could begin at any time. We made a decision, he declared. We said one night we could come suddenly. We uh, we continue with our determination. It is absolutely out of the question for us to further tolerate the threats from these terrorist groups. With U.S. approval, the Turkish government is preparing a bloodbath against the Kurdish forces uh, in Syria. Washington and Ankara have agreed that Turkish troops are to control a zone in northern Syria 30 kilometers deep along 480 kilometers of the Turkish-Syrian border. So that would be roughly 19 miles by 300 miles. Ankara plans to forcibly resettle in this zone 1 to 2 million of the 3.6 million Syrian refugees who who fled to Turkey during the eight-year NATO proxy war in Syria and has threatened to pursue its offensive outside this zone if necessary. Uh, So basically, um, and Trump, Trump's trying to cover his tracks by saying, uh, if Turkey does anything stupid, essentially, I will totally destroy their economy. And I've done that before. 
and um, uh, he, and then again, Trump took credit for uh, basically destroying ISIS when, in fact, it was these Kurdish militia, militias who did most of the dirty work. And... <clears throat> Sorry about that. And this is a really tough thing for me because I am a firm non-interventionist and I, I'm really conflicted on this because on the one hand, I do want our troops to come home because on one hand, this is not our business, but even Noam Chomsky, who's uh, probably the biggest non-interventionist on the planet other than me, he even said we should probably keep troops there to protect the Kurds. So this goes to that sort of humanitarian aspect of U.S. foreign policy that is very rarely actually used. It's usually used for ulterior motives, but this is one case where I would probably keep some troops there in order to protect the Kurds. It's not the most ideal situation, but we got involved in the first place, so we have to clean up the mess that we uh, have contributed to, and um, of course, I wish that it wasn't uh, American soldiers that were responsible for cleaning up the mess, but somebody has to, and somebody has has to prevent another mess from happening, uh, particularly uh, in this instance from Turkey, because uh, Turkey has had a vendetta against the Kurds for decades, and like the KKP, which is the uh, Workers' Party in Kurdistan the Turkish people hate that because they actually want these people want an independent Kurdistan and they want to set up a worker a workplace democracy essentially and obviously Turkey has you know that goes against their best interests so of course Erdogan's going to repress that as much as possible now I think even if we were to keep US troops there the US would eventually also uh, destroy any type of leftist or worker movement uh, in the area that belongs to the Kurds, rightfully uh, and ideally. Um, but I would actually keep the troops there. It doesn't really make me feel all that great to say that, but what also doesn't make me feel all that great is knowing that I had uh, that that uh, that I supported uh, a move where you have thousands of innocent people that uh, could have been saved if we didn't let our ally uh, massacre them because Turkey is one of our allies. So now in the Trump era, that alliance has kind of soured a little bit, but. Um, I don't think that I, I think our alliance with Turkey is still pretty strong and 
I again, I just think I think we should keep some troops there in order to uh, protect the Kurds. So I'm I'm kind of in agreement with Chomsky on this. Again, I wish it wasn't the case, but it is the case. So as much as I am a non-interventionist, I do think that this is absolute. I also think that we should use troops when absolutely necessary. And in this case, it is absolutely necessary for the survival of the Kurds um, to be able to, uh, for them to survive, essentially. I think our protection uh, is essential for them and our uh, influence over Turkey is essential for them. So uh, for the survival of the Kurds. So that's the bottom line. And, you know, like I said, it doesn't really make me feel all that great, but somebody's got to do something. And since we're already there, we may as well protect them. Now, if it was a situation where we were totally out of the loop and Turkey was going to, uh, you know, and we were out of that area entirely and Turkey was going to do something to the Kurds, I would exhaust every diplomatic option first uh, before resorting to an intervention to protect the Kurds. Because, again, most of the U.S. interventions throughout history have not been humanitarian. That was kind of window dressing and justification for uh, the for corporate profits, essentially. I mean, most of our wars, it's just a fact, have been waged to advance geopolitical and corporate interests. So uh, I don't think the humanitarianism thing should be used as a justification too lightly because then, you know, you get into like neocon territory. Like, oh, we care so much about freedom and human rights and spreading democracy around the world. It's like, no, we don't. With how many, with the sheer number and scale of dictatorships we support and have supported in the past, we do not support freedom and democracy around the world. So that's used as an excuse. But in this case, it's not an excuse. In this case, we really do need to protect the Kurds from basically genocide uh, at the hands of the Turkish government. So that's my position. I Again, it's a reluctant thing. It's a reluctant position on my part. But I really think we need to uh, to stay there. Eventually, would I like to get us out of Syria? Yes. And I would have pulled out uh, of Syria on my first day of, of uh, my presidency if I was Donald Trump. And he said he would get us out. Uh, and again, he did for like 10 seconds. And then the neocons and the media started going after that, going after him. So... He basically put him back in. He sent him back back to Syria and back to Iraq and back to Afghanistan and all these other places that we're currently in. And it's a disaster. So I think while we're still there, like I said, while we're still there, I think we should uh, protect the Kurds, but I don't think we should stay there for another 10 years or whatever. Uh, I think this should just be a, a, a very temporary thing uh, that we need to do to 
ensure that the Kurds do not get slaughtered by one of our biggest allies specifically in that region. So anyway, that's my opinion on it. And so that's my opinion. And I welcome hearing alternative arguments. I, I welcome that. But I'm just giving you uh, my personal opinion. And that's pretty much it. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed my return to the podcast. And I will try to see you guys uh, and talk with you guys uh, next week. And thanks for hanging out with me uh, once again here on the left side of Liberty. Thank you.